All right, we have completed our series on Matthew, and uh, today we're actually starting a new series. It's based on some requests I've had, both uh, from the congregation here and from people who are listening to the messages online. Uh, As we went through Matthew, and I would talk about the second coming and the kingdom and the world to come and what pertained to which section, started getting questions on that. And so uh, when I would speak about it and the kingdom to come came up or death or heaven or other themes, people asked me what the sequence was of those events. So I began putting together this series so that those things could be answered. And I'm calling the series, What's Next? Waiting for the Kingdom to Come. And the message today is kind of entitled the way you might hear a kid. So what are we waiting for? You know, that kind of thing. We're going to begin in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. I'm not going to do a lot of going to biblical texts today. Uh, If I do that, we will be here. Uh, That would be a series. Uh, The danger here is that I have to talk about things that I could do a series on each one of those. That's going to mean that I'm going to need your input as to where you need reinforcement where you've got things covered and where you need new information. Uh, That means that this will be in some sense a living series and you can bring some of those things up as you go, uh, as we go to the Q&A at the end of the sermon. So uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5, the apostle says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sakes. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you all became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has, been, has gone forth. So that we do not need to say anything, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, in this text, Paul's talking to the Thessalonians, and he is addressing the response that the Thessalonians had to the gospel, and the word was out in all the other churches that the Thessalonians had come to faith. And specifically, that they had turned from idolatry to the true God, the God of Israel, to serve him. The word there means to become his slaves in the sense of lordship. uh, And to wait for his son from heaven. Now behind that is, as you know, this high priest ministry of Jesus in which he died, he rose from the dead. After 40 days he ascended up into heaven, sat at the right hand of the Father, waiting for his return. And so he he says to them that you, uh, uh, you have turned to God and you are waiting for this return of the Son uh, who will save us from the wrath to come uh, 
be, and so in the same sense, you and I have turned from our futile ways to serve God and to wait for His Son. Now, knowing what we are waiting for and how to live in anticipation of that event is an important sub, uh, subject, and that's the purpose of this series. Notice that they receive the word with joy and tribulation. Uh, it's, not, it's not as I was told when I became a believer. Uh, life is tough and then you come to Jesus and everything is great. Okay? Uh, in some sense, we have both joy in the Lord and we have tribulation in the world. That is going to get worse. Uh, the world is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And the Lord has told us about that. But the joy we have is that we have been delivered from the wrath that will come. Now that doesn't mean that we will go through this unscathed. But it does mean that there is nothing, this goes to Romans 8, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. No circumstances of this life can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Now my plan is to address separate parts of key terms and concepts related to what in theology is called eschatology or the doctrine of last things. Then we will put them together. I was going to say like tinker toys because that's what I grew up with. But probably Legos would make more sense. In other words, we're going to look at these things partially uh, as what the shape of each thing is. Then we're going to put it together. That's where I'm going to need some input from you as to where you are ready because you know what that piece is or whether you don't. And that will be different for you as a congregation uh, than it will be for some of the people listening uh, on the internet because you have a, a different background than they do, particularly with regard to some things I'm going to mention this morning. So um, some of this stuff will be old hat, some of it you will have to unlearn things that you thought you knew. And then there are some things that will be uh, new to you in that context. So if you miss a week, make sure you, you listen and you're ready for that. One of the issues that we're going to see is that much of the historic Christian thinking on this subject is misguided. I'm not going to say it's wrong because much of what they say is correct but usually the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. And so as a result, you end up with a configuration problem or a sequencing problem related to this. So uh, at times I'm going to have to dismantle some things and then reconstruct them. Not because they're wrong, but because they're misguided somewhat. I'll give you an example. I will be talking quite a bit about the error of this notion of an invisible rapture where people simply disappear and are caught up with the Lord and then go to heaven for seven years. There's simply no scripture for that. It's a Christian doctrine, but it's not a biblical doctrine. And so we'll have to talk about that. I grew up with that. I believe that with full fervor and was absolutely convinced that it was true because when someone would talk about it, they'd quote these verses. I'd look at the verses and lo and behold, it said exactly what they said. 
Then later I read the context of those verses and I began to have some concerns about it. Finally, I did a complete search and I realized that with regard to eschatology, there is a serious uh, problem in Christian theology. Not in, not in salvation, in the issue of last times. And I want to talk about the two errors that Christian theology has. Then later I will talk about how those fit into misinterpreting of scriptures. The first one is one you're familiar with, but people who are listening may not be. And that is replacement theology. The basic notion of replacement theology is the idea that with the coming of Jesus, a new system of relating to God has replaced all that took place before. As a result of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, a series of changes have come in full, and that all that happened before, Jesus has now fulfilled and folded it up packed it up, and put it away. This includes the gospel replacing the Torah for salvation. The basic idea is that the Torah was intended to bring salvation, but it couldn't do that because of human sin and the weakness of the flesh. So Jesus fulfilled the law by living it perfectly and then replaced it with a salvation based on faith. If salvation is based on works, and now is based on faith, all that is connected with Israel is now taken from Israel because of their unbelief, and given to Christians, God's new chosen people. Jews can be saved, but they have to give up the struggle to obey God by obedience to the commandments, because earning one's salvation is impossible in the new covenant. Because the church has replaced Israel, all of the promises made to them are now transferred to the church. The new has replaced the old, and all ideas associated with Israel in the scriptures have to be spiritualized and have its focus on the new covenant, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, and basically the church. Now, we have all grown up with that in the water, so to speak. That's simply the way we think of this. Uh, So let me remind you and say to those who are listening new, that Israel is the only culture that God designed directly, and he designed it directly to be a light to the nations. You recall, God started the nations at Babel by confounding the languages and spreading us throughout the world. And each culture developed its own way of life and was without God and without hope in the world, as Paul describes it. And so God chose Abraham, and through Abraham, Isaac, and through Isaac, Jacob, and through Jacob, the children of Israel, To be his chosen people, to be a light to the nations. And that culture, their way of life, is based on the Torah as a revelation from God, not to save anybody, but to show what God's commands and purpose is in such a way that the nations could see that light and compare that light to the way they're acting. 
In other words, Israel is not replaced. It's central to everything that God is doing in that sense. Uh, So, the Torah and the covenants are part of the process. And Jesus made it clear that until heaven and earth passes away, and I checked it every morning, they're still there, not one piece of a letter or the smallest letter will pass from the Torah until it is all brought into full operation. And all of the Abrahamic promises will be fulfilled. But the Torah was never intended to save anyone, and the Torah itself makes that clear. Salvation, which is of the Jews, is and always has been by grace through faith. And faith in God's promised one that would come. This error has caused the church to boast against the natural branches And it's a major part of Christian anti-Semitism, which we as a congregation are also addressing in the congregational reading that we're doing of those three books. So I'll be talking about some of that throughout this series. Replacement theology is the biggest, in my opinion, the biggest error that has ultimately created amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism as theological systems for the end times. And in each case, they either ignore Israel or compartmentalize Israel as relatively unimportant. And that's a major problem. We'll talk about that. That's the first issue. The second issue is um, uh, missing the point of the gospel. The second major error is the idea that the gospel is a transforming message that will change the world and bring to pass all that God is doing. This idea is that the gospel is a power, and that is a misunderstanding of the message of the gospel. Paul does say that the gospel, the good news, is the power of God for salvation, And the word salvation there has to do with ultimately the redemption of the world and the creation. But it's not in the way that it's commonly used by Christians. Um, As a result of this error, the church has proclaimed the gospel with the idea that the message itself would begin to transform the world into the kingdom of God. There are two versions of this. One is top-down, and the other is bottom-up. In the first one, the gospel will begin a domino effect and transform nation after nation into a part of the kingdom of God. This is pulled from the Great Commission. Go and preach the gospel to every nation. And then they leave the text... And go immediately to the idea that the nations will, as the gospel transforms nation after nation, those nations will ultimately become the kingdom of God. In other words, we will have Christian nations. This Christian nationalism uh, is the idea behind what began with Constantine and the notion... Uh, of the Holy uh, Roman Empire 
as a transformation of Rome. And there is a historical uh, understanding that looks like that was actually happening. That the, that the old evil Roman Empire was being transformed into the Holy Roman Empire. The problem is if you look beyond the, the surface and you look at the behavior of people, you begin to notice that there was nothing all that godly about much of what was going on there. This error is also behind the gospel believing, uh, the, the idea that the gospel believing politicians will transform America into a Christian nation like it once was or as it has never been, depending on your view of that. This is, was behind the moral majority in the 80s with the idea that if we put Christians in office in America, we will transform America back into uh, a Christian nation, or if you don't believe it was founded as a Christian nation, uh, into one to be. This form of thinking that somehow the gospel is going to alter governments is a major error. The governments of this world belong to the God of this world and they will not become the the nations of our God and his Christ until the Messiah rules and reigns himself over them. Not because we put Christian kings or Christian governors or Christian presidents into place. Uh, So that becomes a real problem. Uh, The gospel is not intended to redeem governments or nations. Uh, The second form, this bottom-up one, is the one that's currently um, uh, rampant in this younger generation. This is the idea that the gospel is a call to individuals to become world-changing agents. Now, I saw a movie. I didn't see the movie. I just saw the the advertisement for it and decided I wasn't going to watch it. I usually watch every movie that's about the life of Jesus. But this one, as they gave the commercial about it. Uh, Jesus is calling Peter to be his disciple and he tells Peter to come with him and Peter says, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, change the world. Now, ultimately, the world will be changed by the gospel, but the world will not be changed by Christians being change agents to conform the world into the kingdom of God. And so what's happened in this later form is that the individuals see themselves as world-changing agents to right the wrongs of social injustice around the world. We're going to end poverty. We're going to end sickness. We're going to end uh, human trafficking. We're going to end... Now, I'm not against fighting those evils. But the difference is that there is an approach that says we're going to change it. It reminds me of my generation in the 60s when we thought we were going to change the world. And the generations before me thought they were going to change the world. But if you're a student of history, and I am, history kind of swings back and forth between very brief moments that look like we've made some progress and then terrible evils that happen again. And so uh, the reality is the constant reality of this culture and this world is nation rising against nation, wars and rumors of wars, 
manipulation, abuse, and evil being done. Should we resist that? Yes. Are we going to ultimately change it? No. And that's a misunderstanding of what the gospel is. The purpose of the gospel, which is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Notice that Israel stays central, so that brings us back to the problem of replacement theology. It's to call the Jew back to God through repentance and faith, which began with John the Baptist in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, and through the preaching of Jesus who came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Very seldom talked to Gentiles. His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension provides atonement as he is both the sacrifice and the high priest of the new covenant, which Jeremiah says God makes with the house of Israel and with Judah. Again, no Gentiles are mentioned in that Jeremiah passage. Israel then is central to all that God is doing, and the gospel calls upon them to prepare for the end of their diaspora and their regathering into the messianic kingdom to come. And that's why every day in the Maimonides um, statements that we read as part of our liturgy, I believe with a perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, and even though he should tarry, should delay, I will expect him. That's the messianic hope of Judaism, and now it is the hope for both Judaism and Christianity. We're waiting for that King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We know who he is. They don't know him, but they expect him in that sense. That's why the gospel is to the Jew first, but it is also to the Gentiles. Paul makes it clear in Ephesians that the Gentiles are included in the promises made to Abraham, and this is what he calls the mystery of the gospel. He says it was hidden before, but it's now made known by the prophets and the apostles. This gospel calls non-Jews to leave the idolatry and the culture that they're from and serve the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to wait for his son, King Messiah, to come back. That good shepherd will combine his flocks, he said, I have other sheep, and they will be one, and there will be one shepherd. He will then make the nations to become the nations of our God and his Christ, as the book of Revelation says. He will restore the kingdom to Israel, as the book of Acts says, and the glory of the Lord will be seen in all of his creation. That will be the changing of the world by his return and by his power, not by the gospel. The gospel is a call to come out of the world, come into the community of faith, to grow in grace and in knowledge in anticipation of the kingdom that's going to come to begin to live by, that, by the rules of that kingdom and by living a life that doesn't conform to the culture. While we wait for that, we engage in what Judaism calls tikkun olam or the King James Bible in one of the parables calls it occupying. This idea of being about the business of the Lord in the context of this world. I've talked about this before, but I want to give you the word picture. This world is going away. 
And the kingdom will come into place as God restores the kingdom to Israel and the the commandments are fully operational in all of the world, even among the Gentiles, to the extent that they're supposed to be doing them. And the way that's done is, it's as if you have a house here and that house is in disrepair. But you have to live in it, so you fix it the best you can. But you don't completely remodel it because a new house is being built. And so what you do is you tikkun olam, you repair the world as you can, awaiting the time when it will be made new. You won't make it new, the Lord will make it new. And occupying until he comes means that we don't just sit around and run amok while we're waiting for the Lord to come back, but we're building the kingdom. We're building the kingdom in our households. We're building the kingdom in our congregations. And as other people see us doing that and say, what are you doing? You give them an answer for the hope that is in you and for the kingdom and the eternal perspective that we have. And in that witness, we will also draw people in. And in that sense, we become both salt and light to them. So, hopefully they will also repent, believe the good news, and move into preparation for the kingdom to come. When the Lord returns, then and only then, this present world will be restored and then ultimately, according to the book of Revelation and several others, this world will pass away. All that this creation is will be done with. For God will bring it to the level of glory, reflection that it can do. But he has planned things beyond that. Things that eye has not seen, that ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the imagination of man. The things that he is preparing for us, that's the new heaven, the new earth the new Jerusalem, and the new humanity that will be part of the resurrection and, and a replacement of this present creation. There's replacement theology. The new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, new humanity will replace this one when it's brought to its fullness in the kingdom. The errors of replacement theology and the missing the point of the gospel will be a recurring aspect of of this series. Um, I hope to bring clarity and hope, even though the path of the kingdom is filled with challenge, suffering, and betrayal. I'm worried about that with this present generation, because in my classes, when I talk about difficulties of biblical ways versus the cultural ways, they seem to become discouraged instead of hopeful that the one who promised will keep his promise, so I'm going to work on that. There's, there's almost a desire for God to fix this. right? I think of Abraham when God says, I'm going to give you a son and it'll be through Sarah. And Abraham says, God, let Ishmael stand before you. right? Let's just use what we got. Right? And he says, I'll bless him, but your seed will be called in Isaac. This world will be brought to a 
better condition when the Lord returns to vindicate all of God's promises and all of God's statements throughout there. The angels of heaven, the demons of hell, and the people of earth will all confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And God's glory will shine through this creation. But it is a shadow compared to what he is preparing that you and I can't even imagine. That we are actually preparing for there. Now it's the blur of that eternal uh, world and this present world that has caused some of the confusion in Christian theology. So I'm going to try to address that. But it's important that you keep Israel uh, central and that you see the gospel as a call out of this world to wait for the world to be made better and then replaced by the best in that sense. Now I hope this series answers the questions that come up and that it will reinforce uh, why we are connected to the Messianic movement, why we are focusing on our children first and then converts in the same way that the gospel is to the Jew first and also uh, the Gentile. The, the training of discipleship is to your children first and also the converts. Uh, you don't want to let your children go and reach other people. Part of the whole system in Judaism is for them to raise their children to the third generation and then they were also to be a light to the nations. In the same way we are to raise our children in the faith and we are to be a light to those who walk in darkness in hopes that they will come in. But we're not abandoning our families so that we can reach other people. In this radical, individualized world, fewer and fewer young people are wanting to grow up, get married, and have children. That system is coming apart because they're following the world and not the scriptures. And then we're, we've got this idea that if we move into social justice, it'll bring people into salvation. And it really doesn't do that. We have to convince them that this world doesn't have a future apart from the Lord, and they need to come and be with the Lord in that sense. So, that's where we're going. We're going to, I'm going to put the outline in general up uh, on Facebook so you, so you can see where we're going, uh, and then I will adjust that based on your questions and comments as we go. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll do a Q&A.